the problem with this is that everything that really matters to any of us, all the qualitative variables that actually affect the quality of our lives, how we're treated, the kindness that we get, the kindness we give, the love that we have, the compassion that we, those are not incorporated, nor do they have a place in this economic framework. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are gonna show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Welcome to another show, another session of Insert Human, and another, frankly, great opportunity to talk to somebody that has some very important things to say. And her name is Madhavi Venkatasan. She is, let me just read to you, an academic economist and an environmental activist. And I love those two things together. And we're going to talk about how that came to be. Madhavi has earned a doctorate, a master's and bachelor's degree in economics from Vanderbilt, a master's in sustainability and environmental management from Harvard, and a master's in environmental law and policy from the Vermont Law School. She's also a multi-published author. Congratulations on that. And she is an entrepreneur. She established a nonprofit called Sustainable Practices, which I'm sure she's going to tell us a little bit about. So Madhavi, thank you for taking the time out of your life to share with us and be with me today. I want to start with just the very simple question of, or maybe simple question, but probably complicated answer. How did you find this intersection of economics and environmental activism? Like how did this sort of all come, come to pass for you professionally or personally? I can't tell you that there was an exact moment. There wasn't like a flash. (laughs) No, No, but the one thing I will say is uh, as an economist and as someone who's been thinking like an economist for over 30 years, the bottom line is uh, economics is about resource management uh, in terms of human satisfaction uh, on on a very basic level. And believe it or not, there is no standard definition for economics too. But when we start to think about it from that perspective, resources are what? Resources fundamentally are environmental resources or other people. So there's some, it's a life component, either it's a non-human life or a human life. And it's also related to what gives life, the ecosystem in terms of things that are maybe inanimate like rocks, but they still affect resources that humans need for their needs and their wants. And they, in the the use today, they affect our ability to have that use in the future. So there's definitely a responsibility involved in our use that affects our sense of what we feel for the future. That's one aspect. But the other thing that's also inherent in that, that people don't necessarily think about enough is that there's a responsibility that I have to understand the damage or the impact that my resource use has. What? That, and what? so what you say, the biggest problem or shortcoming that we feel or we see in our economy is that the market itself prevents or preempts or acts as an excuse for us to be able to live without having to think about the supply chain of our consumption choices. So that, that's one really important aspect. And I don't know exactly when it, came, it dawned on me that I wanted to do what I'm doing. I've been involved in volunteer activities my whole life. I've often wanted to, 
to make it to have some sort of impact on, on on the world, but I didn't know how. And then finally, one day, as part of an organization, I think this is what really probably may have been the catalyst. I realized that people like to talk about things, they like to write about things, but they're not a whole lot of people actually going out and doing those things. And so I thought, well, why can't it be me? And so I started it that way, both from my nonprofit, which you alluded to, as well as my academic life, which actually just only began again in 20, 2014, excuse me. And so in the last six years, I have been what I consider part of a growing outlier group. I am not alone in my, in my thinking. There are a lot of economists that think like me, but we are not necessarily the standard or the norm yet. There are also a lot of people out there that think about sustainability, but don't want to put the effort forth unless it's made easier for them to do so, or they're very good at coming up with excuses as to why they can't implement it. So there's a barrier between what they value and what they actually do, that value action gap. So I thought, well, since I understand how the economic system works, I understand how easy it is not to do things. Maybe I can have an opportunity both in the classroom as well as in community engagement where I can use a stakeholder model to engage people based on the level of effort they want to put in, but Mm. still give them the opportunity to feel like they can make a difference. So tell me more about that model. How exactly, because I, 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 in my work, I see a lot of, I see a lot of listening. I see a lot of Mm -hmm. talking, but there is this Delta between the intellectual embrace of the issue or the opportunity and the action. So, so tell me more about that model. Well, a stakeholder engagement model, we are all a part of already in the sense that as long as we're a consumer, we've already been affected by some sort of stakeholder engagement model that made us believe that we needed something that we probably didn't. So the best best companies to look at for examples of what stakeholder engagement means are the actual large successful consumer companies because they differentiate their targeting based on demographics. Just like if you're an activist or an environmental pursuit or you want to be a conduit for positive change, you can't just be sitting there with your own message and feeling very happy that you have this great message. That message has to be said in a way that aligns to the incentives of all your different constituents. Right, right. So the message outcome has to be the same, but the way you say it, the way you communicate it, the way you attract people to it has to be tailored for that group. So you have to be a better marketer effectively. Yeah. Life is all about marketing. I think so. I think so. So tell me about the cultural component and does, does sort of sustainable, I don't know what phrase you use, but sustainable economics or an economic model that fosters sustainability. Do you see different permutations of that country to country? Are certain systems, certain governing systems, certain, you know, is the American way more or less aligned or, you know, oriented towards changing its behavior? Like, how do you see this sort of at a, at a global level, country to country, system to system? It must change or differ dramatically, I would guess. To some extent, the issue is what you just touched on in a, in a sense. So this country created the GDP or the gross domestic product metric in the 1930s. 
It exported it to the rest of the world in the 1940s, making it a standard. The GDP is really one of the major reasons why our economy is the way it is and why people are so individualistic and why we don't think about the externalities that affect sustainability. So let's just talk about that for a second and then talk about how that's affected other countries. So when you look at the GDP framework in the United States, consumption which is made up of a few basic components. Government spending is one component. Consumption spending is another component. Production expenditures are another. And then your net exports are the the final four basic components. Consumption actually is almost 70% of our gross domestic product. And we measure economic growth, which we proxy as being also equivalent to standard of living based on this one metric. Like human human progress is greater GDP in our simple minds. Is that is that what you're saying? Oh, the standard of living, the wealth of a nation is determined based on the amount of the, the size of the GDP relative to others. Okay. But think let's think about it really simply. The US has created this metric. This metric is consistent with the cultural orientation of the US, which is a consumer-based country and one where marketing has been pushed as a mechanism of creating more and more growth, where planned obsolescence is at the the basis or the foundational level of how we continue to promote that growth. Convenience-based consumption, everything's convenience, everything's consumer-oriented because that's the growth engine. Well, that's a cultural orientation at the same time, right? Because that means that we are human-centered in our country. We aren't necessarily thinking about the impact of our own individual self-gratification because that's not part of our model. Our model is about growth, about having more. And we have more by selling to more people, which means we promote individualism for that simple reason. Because if you have a community and they're sharing things, that's not really going to grow your GDP. Right, right. So these are all issues. These are all social constructions that are U.S.-based Uniquely U.S. or developed country-based, or, or you see us? Well, they're developed country-based in the in the EU. I, I would say that's true, but there's a different there are different cultural orientations towards it. I don't think any country is as consumer-focused as the U.S., except for perhaps countries where, that have adopted materialism as a mechanism of social stratification, which we've seen happen in several other newer newer emerging markets, you might say, or areas right. where there's been an increase, in a very quick increase in middle class. But that aside, just thinking about from this perspective, there's one other thing that's really important here. The only thing that's valued in GDP is the stuff that you pay for. So the problem with this is that everything that really matters to any of us, all the qualitative variables that actually affect the quality of our lives, how we're treated, the kindness that we get, the kindness we give, the love that we have, the compassion yeah. that we, those are not incorporated, nor do they have a place in this economic framework. They're not part of the measure. No. They're- so think about a country where the market mechanism doesn't exist. The people do things just to do them because they're part of the community. They're not asking or charging someone for it. That country would look as though it had a lower GDP But in many, many ways, it could be a better functioning entity on that cultural level because they're not necessarily only valuing what they pay for. What we have fundamentally done is basically say that the market has a better way of valuing everything than we do. So, which is, I mean, wild to, you know, to contemplate. If you start to think about it, that's exactly true. What's the first question you ask someone when you meet them? What do they do? What do you gauge when you look at somebody's car, their wealth potential? Why? Because in your mind, you're stratifying them based on what their observable wealth is. 
not based on who they are, their intellectual prowess, their ability to contribute and change. Or just how kind they are or, or right, right. Yeah, no, those are irrelevant. Those are, those are how we evaluate people in this country. And I'm sure that happens in other countries, but I don't think it's quite as pervasive as it is in the United States. Who, um, let me just ask you, go back to the GDP in thing. What entity created that? Was that, was that a federal government thing or was that a lone economist pushing an agenda or? No, Congress, it was, uh, it was done through the federal government and it's a, sta- a statement that national income accounts established by a group of economists led by Simon, uh, Simon Kuznets in the 1930s. And at that time, when Kuznets made the testimony in front of Congress with regard to this in- in- indicator that he had created, that the group had created, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but what he very clearly noted is that this indicator should never be used as a standard of living, quality of life indicator. All it can measure is production. But. And among among economists, this is an area that's being written about quite a bit more routinely than usual in the past. Mm-hmm. There are two reasons why there's no change. There are a whole lot of people who refuse to see the world any differently because they bought into this social construction of our reality, which is, is how the world works. There are other people, though, that don't want to change it because it would nullify so much of their research that they've been doing before that has incorporated GDP in it. And perhaps there's even another school of people, those people who are starting to enter into their their progression of their career, who don't really want to deal with any kind of confrontation or issues uh, related to that progression by bringing this issue up. So the very group of people that could make the difference are the people who are not, not as vocal on the needs that need to be made or incorporated to take us to a better society. So I assume you're not in that group. <laughs> and I assume you've thought a lot about what the measure or measures could be. And I'm actually hearkening back to the interview I, I did with David Grispoon as a astrobiologist who's charged with working with NASA to help figure out how to settle Mars or other planets. And, and he and I were talking about the, the idea of a blank slate, like if you and I went to Mars to settle Mars and we could create our, our new system, new, a new set of measures, you know, we could leave, we could leave the dark baggage back on Earth and we could, we could only take the good stuff. How have you begun to think about what, what the right measure or is there already a measure out there that just simply hasn't been adopted or, you know, is there any, I guess there isn't, is there an alternative that you see? Uh, obviously better than GDP. Well, the question's a little complicated. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to break down a little for myself. There is an area, you see GDP, GDP, unfortunately, in some respects, because the way the economic system, and it's not really GDP, I'll just say economic system being based on this one metric in a sense, because our monetary and fiscal policy both revolve around meeting our potential GDP. That's what we're always targeting. By being based on that metric, we have established a framework for how we live and, and interact with one another without even recognizing it. But the issue is we do have commerce. So as to whether commerce would evolve in one way or another is too difficult to say. What, what we can start to think about is how this economic system in some ways, especially with the secularization of society, has taken a role almost like a religion. And I, I say this, and I, I know that some people might turn off right when I'm saying this, but I, I hope that you'll continue to listen. 
religion is a social construction. It is not necessarily related to being in a church. It has to do with a way that you believe and gives you purpose to your existence, one could I argue. Agree. I agree with that. So yeah. When our, our economic system gives us one purpose, which most people don't even sit back in our system to think about what their purpose is, but it inherently is to consume and to accumulate. That is the purpose in the system. Which is so depressing. <laughs> but if you sit back and you think about and contemplate everything that you work for and everything that you do, you will come back to that end, end goal. There's no other end goal. And it's not even intergeneral requesting that's part of that goal anymore. It's more of an immediate gratification component, having more, not even recognizing why you want it because you're not critically thinking about it. So the reason why I'm saying this is economic, our economic system in some respects has taken away from a more spiritual or religiously driven purpose. So number one, I guess, if we were going to look at how we could make a better world, I think the very first thing we have to define is what is our purpose in this one? Mm. And how often do we sit back and contemplate what our purpose is? And our generation in our time period, we're very lucky because there's so many problems that our purpose can be related to fixing more. <laughs> but in a blank, yay, yay. in a blank slate, like you're imagining, the purpose would have to be something higher. Right. Right. It would be higher from the standpoint of either being able to maintain, cultivate, steward, not dominate, not right. dominate the way that we have been. And domination, I, I have brought this up before in another discussion, which is domination in and of itself is not necessarily exclusive of stewardship, but acquires a thinking person. In order to dominate, you have to have those entities that are being dominated, right? Right. So there's, an a, there's a stratification, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah an yeah. intelligent dominator, so to speak, would be stewardship-minded because in order to be able to maintain that stance of domination, you have to maintain those who you are dominating. Right. But we aren't intelligent dominators. We're not we thinking. are are not. We, we are, are not. not. No, no, no. Blunt, we we're blunt. Dominated with exclusivity, with an absolute stance of not thinking of how we have to also protect what we dominate. So to your question, first of all, I hope we don't colonize other places. I hope that we don't leave this planet. I don't think we should. We haven't been able to fix the problems that we created I here. I, I think I said the same thing to David. I'm like, well, I don't, we're not qualified to transport or, or transfer what we've done here to some other place. Yeah, like Saturn has natural rings around it. We have garbage circulating our planet. Right, right, right. So yeah. I, I would say the first thing, though, if we were thinking about how we could make the world better from where it is today, is start to think about what kinds of systems create interconnectivity. Small localized economies do that. So growth, which is what we're all about, is actually one of the biggest undercutters of the ability to maintain sustainability. It's because it creates an anonymity factor. And that oh. anonymity factor allows us to behave in ways that disconnect us from our actual values. From our humanness. Not that that's a word, right? That makes well, perfect I don't know if everybody, every, everybody doesn't have a conscience. Right. Right. Everybody has different people have different levels of conscience, but everyone has something that motivates that motivates them, whether it's to uh, to eliminate pain or, or something else. That's the other big problem is that we have too much of a heterogeneity in terms of how people have been brought up and communicated to educated, even had human kindness done to them, that these are some of the barriers. These are the stakeholder barriers to entry in terms of coming up with a very simple, a one size fits all way of of handling this issue. Is but, that heterogeneity an American thing or is that a is that a global developed world thing? Like, how do you see that? Heterogeneity is really dependent upon how much in-migration you have. This whole country is based on in-migration in terms of its development. So that's where the heterogeneity 
it starts. But the lack of the lack of acceptance of the differences that exist here is why the heterogeneity persists and perhaps maybe not the best possible. We're not talking about diversity and inclusion. We're talking about differences and, and isolation. <laughs> but, I mean, this is still a white based white nationalist based country at its core. Oh, yeah. And, oh, and yeah. so. And so from that perspective, when we talk about heterogeneity, we're talking about the creation of the other and that that creation of the other and the segmenting off of different groups of people and feeling less sensitive to them because they don't look like me or I can somehow justify their marginalization based on other aspects of how they don't integrate into society. Not taking into consideration, I may be part of that reason why they don't integrate because I don't question the institutions or the rules or even my own stereotype or implicit bias. You know, that's a whole different story. But I, I would just say we have to start to think from a smaller system basis. I think I understand that. But t- tell me, give me, what does that mean exactly? Is that like shop local? Is that like when you say smaller systems, you mean community, you know, my community-based commerce, my community, you know, you know, relationships that are relationships versus anonymous. I'm buying from an entity. It's an entity. It's not a group of people. It's an entity. You know, is that what you're proposing? Is that? Yeah, it would be like your groceries. Your your groceries are are grown locally. You know, the farmer, Uh, if your car is broken down, you know, the mechanic, you have an understanding. So if somebody God forbid, had a hard time in your community, you as a community would come together to help them in their situation. You would be each other's safety net. It would be a community that would not be based on fear. We would know that we would be we would be safe because each other would keep ourselves safe. We don't even have an ability to comprehend what that would mean. Most of us don't even understand completely how much fear actually embeds our day-to-day functionality. We have some trust, but we don't actually move out of our little spheres of comfort for the simple reason of the fear of how we're going to be treated or the services we're going to be rendered or, or other aspects of that unknown, right? That's what usually keeps people in the same job, even though they may not like it. It keeps people in the same marriage, even though they may not be happy because oh, yeah. Yeah. of a fear of what it's like outside. And we don't we don't reach our own maximum potential as a result. But that's you know a slightly different tangent. But that's no, it's, a, it's completely relevant, and it's something I've written a lot about. And and I do believe that fear is the great disabler of us, of our society. Of you know, like it's just it is this insidious force that gets in the way of you know a lot of the conversations that should be happening, or a lot of the actions that should be being taken by people. I'm, you know, I'm, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. I've had the pleasure or the luck of being able to travel a fair amount, and I lived in Italy when I was younger. And your whole comment about like living locally, knowing your mechanic, it reminds me of you know being up in the hills of Tuscany and stumbling into this tiny little village, and it's like 500 people, and everybody clearly knows everybody, and they, and that level of intimacy, which breeds, I think, a level of if not trust, you know, support for one another, I think is, you know, we, and we come away from that experience thinking it's charming and being sort of almost mesmerized by that life. And then we get back and we resume our life, which is a life effectively the opposite of that, of that human intimacy, right? As you said, that that anonymity where everything is a function and the human dimension is non-existent. 
or hidden or you know inaccessible, I suppose. So I have to sort of, at the beginning, you talked about your own journey and your attempt to move from you know being a thinker to being a, an observer to being a person of action. And I'm reminded of a piece that I read in the Times last year by Charles Homan, who he was writing about climate change and specifically the fires in Australia. And what he very poignantly depicted is that when we, we as humans watch the videos of the fires and the devastation, our frontal lobe processes the information and says, oh my God, that's terrible. We need to do something about it. I need to do something about it for my for my children, for future generations. But then the amygdala, which is apparently some little gland in the middle of our brains, kicks in and says to us, don't worry. <laughs> it's it's not your problem. This is the uh, this is the the thing that triggers our fight or flight response to adversity, I guess. And and after I read that, I just I just thought to myself, what what will motivate more of us to do something differently? Like, how do we move from the theories? And I think your your theories make perfect sense to me. But how do you see? Well, maybe this is a good segue to tell me about your sustainable practices, because my guess is that's that's on the ground trying to motivate behavior change at a more call it macro level. How do you? How do you see moving more people to to behave differently in ways that are healthier for them, healthier for their community, healthier for the planet? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Yes. First of all, I don't think we have to think in such a big spectrum that you have to have 1 million people mobilized in, in a 10 million population. Right. Count. It's probably not helpful, right? I, I go back to the Margaret Mead quote, you know, never, never underestimate basically that a small group of people can make a big difference because they're, that's all it ever really has. That's all that ever really changed the world. I think uh, that's probably both the, the basis of the changes that need to be made, but also at the same time, one of the reasons why it's hard to make them. And I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Even when we look at the way the government is run or any other type of institution, it's always a small group of people that are making the decisions that have been given that right to make those decisions. So it's not a big shock that it would be a small group of grassroots activists that could make significant differences in their communities. Right. But the mobilization of those of that small group is really difficult because of the fact that if it was such a popular thing to do, you wouldn't need to make the change. So those individuals that are actually coming together to make the changes or push for the changes that need to be made have to be very strong. Mm -hmm. And they actually have to act like that small localized economy that I discussed before. They have to be interconnected. They have to empower each other because when they go out in the world, they're facing the adversity that people show to them specifically because people don't want to make the change. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't want to be dealing with their own potential in their face hypocrisy between their values and their behaviors. There are so many different reasons why they may have, why you may have challenges when you're a grassroots activist, but the change is not hard. So I'm just one person. I started my organization in 2016. That was when we were actually incorporated and got our designation by the IRS, but I didn't do anything until the fall of 2017. And I started a, a film series because I, I thought to myself that documentary films may be a great conduit of actually 
starting to get people to feel more empathy towards the issues related to sustainability and to do it based on the three different pillars that are that that basically create sustainability or are related to sustainability social justice environmental justice and economic equity so the first film i ever showed was plastic ocean and I had a relationship with a very cute little theater, the prettiest theater here on the Cape, in my opinion, the Chatamorphium. And they've been my sponsor ever since that first film. That's great. We've, you know, we've been having that film series for now almost two years. We do them virtually at this moment because of the COVID situation. But in 2018, I found a film called Divide and Conquered, which was about the first plastic bottle ban in the United States, which happened in Concord, Massachusetts. And Jean Hill, who's who was in her 80s at the time, was the reason why the whole bottle ban ever occurred. Unfortunately, she has since been is deceased, but mm-hmm. she was an inspiration. And I had one other person working with me at that time, and we booked libraries across the Cape, all 15 libraries. And I went and showed the film in all 15 towns with a little sign-up sheet to see who I could get to be interested in, in you know, joining our actions. I wasn't 100% sure what we were going to do even then. But by mid-2018, in combination of the films that I was showing at the Orpheum, which was just once a month at 10 o'clock on Saturday, and then, and then showing these films all the way through May of 2018, we had a couple hundred people that had signed up. And I talked to another friend of mine because I'd been involved in town politics for several years. I sat on my town's finance committee, ran for office four times, lost <laughs> four times. It but, happens to everybody. I was, I'm just starting the, the Obama, the new Obama book. And, you know, he, he got whacked the first time, too. So. But it's, good. it's a learning lesson. And, right. Um, right. And but and I talked to a friend of mine who was my former town moderator and put me in touch with an attorney who drafted the language for bylaws because I knew enough from my being in gov- town government that the way the Massachusetts runs, we have a very unique and wonderful system. You can get anything heard on your town meeting floor by filing a, a citizen's petition. So we filed citizens' petitions in 11 towns, I'm oh, sorry, nine towns in 2019 in the spring to eliminate town purchase of single-use plastic bottled beverages and the sale of beverages on town property in plastic containers. So anything, wine, beer, anything. And, and let me ask you a question. Is a petition like 50 pages long or what is a what is a petition? It's an article with your with the language of the bylaw that you have, that you're, that you're asking people to have put into the town meeting warrant and then signatures that are required in spring. You need 10 signatures of registered town meeting voters in order to be able to get it on the town meeting warrant, which is what is used to vote in the state of Massachusetts and country in towns, excuse me, that have town meeting to vote on the budget, on other expenditures, as well as other bylaws that may be entering into how the town conducts its business. Okay. So we had that filed. We passed in five. We had an issue in four. And my group was just growing. All these people were new. We were all just working together. Each one of them represented a different town. And we grew even more by the fall. By the end of 2018, we passed in 11 towns out of the 15. And in the 12th town, which was Barnstable, we were starting, we were pushing forward with the town meeting because they they didn't have, excuse me, town council. They don't have a town meeting. And in the beginning of 2020, I'm sorry, that was 2019. I think I said it right. So in 2020, Our goal was to go one step further, which was a commercial single-use plastic bottle ban, plastic water bottle ban, excuse me. And we went after plastic water bottles that were non-carbonated, non-flavored drinking water because we wanted to at least start the behavioral change related to using reusables. And This is all commercial, all retail, all distribution. Wow. Less than than one gallon in size. So single-use. Single-use, yeah, yeah. 
And that's because at a gallon, you have distilled water and some distilled water is needed for certain types of businesses. And as long as there's no alternative, we didn't want, we wanted to at least give some time for those businesses to have an alternative for themselves. So we went after this. This is 60% of the beverage market is plastic water bottles, approximately between 50 and 60. So uh, we, because of COVID, even though we had filed in 11 towns, we we had, we had it postponed till fall. And then we were asked again, if, by town governments if we would postpone it yet one more time. And we said no. Wherever we could say no, we said no. So in starting September through November, we were on 10 town meeting warrants. One town postponed it because they didn't allow it at all. It was it was a so it's on the spring, that's Chatham. But the other 10 we passed in seven and we were postponed in the other three. So seven towns on Cape Cod can no longer have commercial sale of single-use plastic water bottles by September 1 of 2021. Now we will file again in in those other in the remaining towns. And That's we also amazing. yeah we also picked up a couple other towns for the municipal ban. So right now we're at 13 municipal ban, seven with the commercial ban and there are 15 towns altogether on the Cape. So this is not a huge impact, okay? Because we are just one island. But you, what you said it, you said it, Madhavi, like little, uh, small, start small. Like you, you don't have to boil the ocean, you know? No, like, but, but it's a significant impact in the sense that on September 1, when you go to the grocery stores, in these grocery stores, water will not be there. When you go to the liquor store, when you go to the convenience store, there won't be there. We are a tourist-based economy. It's right. going to be noticed because right. most of these com- entities are going to start phasing out before September 1. And as a result, what you're going to potentially do is those people who come from out of off Cape are going to say, why are they not selling this here? And hopefully we'll have the literature out to share with them why. Right. And they will start to think. And to your point, some people are going to be motivated by the education we give. Some people are going to be motivated based on the fact that they can't buy it. And then there are going to be some people who are just going to complain. But I cannot concern myself with those people who are complaining who will not read as to why this is happening. There are unfortunately many, many people who just don't do not understand that endocrine disruption, fertility disease, obesity, cardiovascular disease, all of these have been directly tied to our ubiquitous use of plastic. My favorite is that we consume the equivalent of a credit card worth mm-hmm. of microplastic every, I don't know, some crazy, mm-hmm. is it week? week? Okay, let me repeat that for the audience. We consume, this is proven, this is not fake news, this is proven fact, we consume the equivalent of a credit card of microplastics every week in our life. And that can't be good. I'm sorry. Well, it was never it was never analyzed or evaluated for its human health impact because it was never meant to be ingested. So that's the other issue. So when we, were t- we were talking a moment ago about small localized economies. In a small localized economy, we wouldn't have this type of problem because we would have used what was available to us in our small localized economy. Right, right. This is all related to one thing. And that's going back to that GDP metric. Convenience consumption is like the perfect product because it constantly needs to be replenished. And if you don't have to take into consideration the adverse consequences on human and environmental health, the impact of petroleum use, the impact of not having an appropriate disposal mechanism, oh my gosh, it's a, you know, you're just sitting on top of a a, a huge mound of capital that you continue to make based on people's use of convenience as an excuse to consume. You know, it, it, I I neglected to share that um, I'm working on a book 
titled Technology is Dead from that original speech I gave a couple of years ago. And the first part of the book, I examine what progress is. You know, just and not as an academic or a researcher, just as, as a person, like contemplating what progress is and also examining what has been the impetus behind much, if not most of the innovation that's occurred since the Gutenberg press. And what I arrived at is much of it and particularly all of it today seems to be focused on one thing, speed, convenience, <laughs> like and that that there's a sort of assumption, I think, of many of us along the way that more faster is better, that more convenience is better regardless of cost. And and I and I'm sitting there going, uh, I think I think that's actually a problem. You know, that that speed, remember the expression speed kills? Well, I think speed may in fact be killing us. But anyway, just well, the basic things that we need to survive are oxygen water and the food that we eat. And all of those are contaminated based on this urge or desire to produce more for speed and convenience. So we are actually eliminating the things that we need to live based on the convenience that we think we need to have. There's an inconsistency that if we sit back and you sort of reflect on it, it, it doesn't make sense that we do have the things we do, which again, brings us back to the fact that we live in a social construction, that we don't have an understanding of what true critical engagement is that we continue to perpetuate the frameworks that we were born into without question of their relevance today. We are not mindful. We use all of these terms, mindfulness, critical engagement, as a measure of assessing ourselves in this individual self-love kind of way, but we don't do it in the way that actually probably, in my opinion, matters the most, which is to examine why we do what we do based on the framework that we've been forced to live in. Does the framework need to change or does our behavior in that framework need to change? Both. But the framework will not change unless our behavior in that framework that exists right now changes. You can't change the framework without changing the people. Otherwise, what will happen is you have regulation that people don't understand. So they they simulate the needs of that regulation, but they continue to do what they were doing before. So the intention is never met. I mean, one of my expressions is behavior is the root of all consequence. And I'm not sure that that's exactly true, but it seems plausible that what you just said, unless we we change how we do what we do, the systems, the constructs that we we invent to make things better won't actually make it better because we're still doing it the way we did it before. Yeah, we have to be critically engaged in why and, and we have to educate and you have to educate from a stakeholder engagement perspective of touching people where they're most sensitive. Some people will be caring about their their children. Some people might care about their own longevity. Some people may care about the protection of their assets, right? So you have to communicate with each one of them based on that. Now there, and also understand that you're not going to be able to communicate or win everyone over. There's an unfortunate limitation to change. And that's usually on the part of the change agents that looking, that's looking for consensus. Right. Consensus right. will only take us to the lowest common denominator. It will not take us to where we need to go. Right. I love that. So tell me, let's let's because I'm mindful of the time and I need to let you go. Tell me about the next the next wave of of sustainable practices in your work. Like what's more towns, you know, like what's the what's the what's the vision for this thing over the next couple of years? And how can people get involved? If 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 there are people, most of most of the people, half the people that listen to my show are are US based, most of them probably in New England. So how can how can people help you? Well, our website is sustainablepracticesltd.org. 
Our email is contact us at sustainablepracticesltd.org. So we welcome people to look at our website and to email us. You can email us actually by opting in just when you get on the website. In terms of what, what our next steps for us, obviously, is we want to finish up the municipal and commercial ban and make it an all-CAPE effort. Because we, one, in doing that, we also are recognizing that, that we are a community, that it's not one town to one town. It is, we have to act and behave in unison in order for the impact of our changes to really have significance. We have a very, we're very fortunate because we live basically on an island. So our control over our island in terms of our environmental policy will go a very long way. But the next thing we would really like to do is, is look at food waste. Again, because I said we, we are a tourist-based economy. There are compostables when convenience is absolutely necessary, but we'd really like to push for people carrying their own utensils with them. I think it would be a very smart move going forward. But if you have to get carry out, there are compostables. In order for that to actually work, though, we need to have food waste and composting facilities for that food waste on Cape in hopefully three different locations. And this brings up the issue of eliminating single-use plastic altogether. Because in order to be able to really make compostable wear efficient, you don't want to have any plastic wear that can accidentally get commingled. What the benefit of compostable wear is, is that it can have commingled food waste, which plastic can't. And unlike plastic, it actually can biodegrade. Plastic will not be recycled, as we already know. But so if we can get rid of single-use plastic, have compost stations across the Cape, then that's the next step. But then what that light bulb hopefully goes off in people's minds is that this, unfortunately, a lot of people eat animal product. And I say unfortunately, because I, I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to the extent that animal products are in food waste, now all of a sudden you are taking the antibiotics and other types of hormones that may have been injected into those animals and putting it into the compost materials that will then be redistributed on the cake. So hopefully then this would open the door to start thinking about animal cruelty and ag gag laws and how we need to actually be properly stewarding our planet by not enslaving it. And so that would ideally be the next move and it would make the most sense for us to start to critically and assess and analyze how most of our behaviors really do perpetuate a hierarchy of value of life and yeah. how if we came in direct contact with the harm that we create to other species, including plants, that uh, it would be horrific to us. So yeah. we're coming out of Christmas right now. People have been buying Christmas trees. If you sit back and you think to yourself, this is life that was purely cultivated to be killed for one use. It's a little bit horrific. Oh, horrific. Yeah. I was actually reading a, a piece about the Christmas tree industry the other day, and the numbers are stupefying. You know, in terms of what goes into it for what what purpose exactly, or what gain exactly. You know, another sort of personal just anecdote. I think fueled in part by writing the book, which is an examination of you know humans over the last whatever umpteen centuries. I've gotten much more sensitive to this whole thing. I mean, I've always intellectually been concerned, aware, but if you looked at my behaviors, not so much, you know, like I'd buy a bottle of water. I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't taking, I just wasn't taking action. And then again, in writing the book, I started feeling it more. I started feeling the, 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 the terrible reality of it more. And then in feeling it, I became more sensitive to what I was actually doing. And one of the things my, my wife and I did about a year ago at my prompting is sign up for a, a, a composting service called Bootstrap, which is a bucket. They leave it. We live in a downtown Boston. They, they leave you an empty bucket. 
and you put your food scraps into it during the week and you put it out on Tuesday and they take the bucket away. And we actually share it with our our, our neighbors. And what, what's, what blows me away is every week we fill up, four people fill up what I, I assume is like a, I don't know, a 20 gallon bucket. You know, it weighs 25 pounds. Yeah. Multiply that times. You're like, oh my God. Well, you were talking about defining progress earlier. The one thing I I like to bring up is you would think that we would define progress by the elimination of waste as a problem, right? Instead, we define progress with these other parameters that you're talking about in terms of speed and convenience and gratification. But the fact that we dig a hole and put our trash in it says a whole lot about how progress has really affected our society. To me, that seems so disgusting that we take this land that is free and clear of any kind of human pollution and we pollute it. And we don't seem to think that that sort of deviates from the whole concept or the, or we burn it or, or we put it on. I don't know if they still do this. Do they put junk on barge or trash on barges and dump it in the ocean? Is that still happening? Probably. I'm sure it does happen. I, I, I mean, it wouldn't be something, it would be a crime. So it wouldn't be right. something that we reported. But, you know, burning it is worse in many ways. But, you know, the thing that's so sad about that is they call it waste to energy. And they also call burning garbage a renewable fuel source. I mean, this is this is this is a little. This is how mar- how far our marketing has marketing. Gone. We're back to marketing. <laughs> brilliant in a twisted way. Well, l- listen, I, I I need to let you go. I, I just so love what the work that you're doing. I, I I appreciate as a fellow human what you're trying to do. To the audience, I encourage you to visit the website. I encourage you to check out what what Madavi is up to, and I also encourage you. And I can't make you do this, audience. But even li- I think your your message about little things matter, starting small can make a big difference. I think that's something we can all hold on to from this conversation. Like, th- there's no silver bullet to any of this, and each of our individual behaviors or actions can make a difference, as you are making a difference with with your behavior and sustainable practices. May so, I make one last comment? Absolutely. And it's because my my big fear that's coming on right now because we've just gotten through an election. I honestly hear this too often, which is we have to wait until the state or the federal government puts rules in place. I would like people to remember and be cognizant. It is the people on the ground that elect the officials that represent us. So to the extent that you have people in office that have forgotten who their constituency is. It's It means that the job of the grassroots movement of the person on the ground isn't just around the election time, but it's about the active vigilance year round. It is part of the responsibility of being a citizen of any nation is to be vigilant because just like we forget our constituency when we go to our workplace, we don't necessarily think about the problem we may have had at home. Yeah. Same thing happens to those elected officers. They may forget about what's happening in their home community, being focused, unfortunately, based on the committee work that they're doing in their national office or state office. We have to hold them accountable and we have to keep them understanding that they represent our needs. We don't have the millions of dollars or billions of lobbying dollars. We only have the strength of our vote, our phone call, and the noise that we can make when we stand together. But it's only grassroots movements that change 
a nation because people can only understand what needs to be changed if they they themselves have bought into it. And there's so many examples of that. The civil rights movement is probably the best. You had the same legislation in the 1860s, right after the Civil War. It didn't take hold because there were too many people who wanted to keep African-Americans in their place. Supposedly, the 1960s has happened again, but it's still not completely there. Why? If it was, we wouldn't have to have black lives going on. You have to educate people and you have to do it in a multi pronged approach. Then you have the solid grassroots that you need to hold regulation accountable to the grassroots rather than having grassroots accountable to regulation. So I really hope people will take that away. Yeah, and I think that's so well said. And I, I would just add to it the recognition that the time horizon is not, it's not an administration time horizon. You know, we created this mess over multiple administrations and multiple decades, if not centuries. And it's going to take, a, you know, a, a consistent, sustained, as you say, grassroots effort, regardless of who's in office to ultimately get us, you know, get us to a better place on this stuff. So anyway, thank you so much. And I really, I really appreciate you, your gift of you, your brain, your thought, your work, everything that you're doing to, to help the world be a better place. And thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, You can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons. There are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.